Welcome back to the Sports Docs Podcast. This is Year in Review 2023, Part 2. We just want to say thank you again to our listeners and guests for making this year our best yet. We hope you enjoy this episode. We are kicking it off with Episode 57, The Injury Report, AC Joint Separations in the NFL. All right, awesome. So let's talk about time missed. So in general, athletic activities are held for about two weeks in type one and about three to six weeks in type two. But really, this is based on symptoms, sport, position, hand dominance. Like if you're a baseball pitcher, you're going to be held out longer for a type one than someone who's a field position or someone who's maybe a linebacker. So what about in the NFL? So a 2012 study on AC joint injuries in the NFL reported that athletes lost roughly 10 days per injury, um, with quarterbacks losing the most time about an average of 17 days. Other interesting takeaways from this paper, the majority of injuries occurred during game activity on natural grass surfaces. I thought it was really important to point that out because I feel like every time someone gets injured nowadays, they're like, turf, get the turf out of there. And turf has problems. So I just found this was interesting. And most often on passing plays, which makes sense given that offensive players are, are most involved. Um, the incidence of these injuries was greatest in quarterbacks. Um, and the majority were treated non-operatively. Only 1.7% went on to need surgery. And those who required surgery were out for an average of uh, 56 days. Episode 52, Game Plan, Hamstring Injuries in the NFL. One of my mentors, Steve Cohen at Rothman, he looked at this and he found that rapid return to play, which is less than one week out from your initial injury, was associated with isolated long head of biceps femoris injuries, which we will put a, a depiction here. The long head of biceps femoris is one of the hamstring muscles and um, tears that involve less than 50% of the muscle with minimal swelling. So essentially a grade one strain. More prolonged uh, return to play, so greater than two to three weeks missed, was associated with tears that involve multiple muscles, greater than 75% muscle involvement, extensive swelling. They were further down into the muscle belly itself versus being at the junction of that muscle and tendon that we spoke about at the start and grade three strains, which are complete injuries. So a follow-up study looking at this found that this was unreliable to predict return to play. But interestingly, people always quote that, but this um, comparison study by Hamilton et al. um, looked at use of this grading system in uh, soccer players, not football players. So I still think this holds some utility, not that this kind of information is out to the general public knowing exactly how many tendons or, or muscles are involved. But it's just interesting to know. I do think that there is some correlation with the extent of injury and how much time we can expect a player to miss. Yeah. And obviously all this data is so important when we're talking about, you know, a week missed is a really big deal. So trying yeah. to target what is their return to play? Um, what's the expectation is super important. So that data becomes a bigger deal. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about treatment recovery timeline. So what can we expect when this happens? So the mainstays of early treatment, rest, ice, NSAIDs, or, you know, over-the-counter medications, followed by stretching and strengthening. Um, mainly the goals are to correct any muscle imbalances with the quadriceps. And then there's other things that are working on the soft tissue. So massage, ultrasound, electric stimulation. Um, those kind of modalities are sort of an adjunct add-on to sort of help reduce some of the symptoms. But, you know, the reality is these things can take six weeks to fully heal. So can we speed that up? Um, and I think the answer to that is really maybe. So PRP or platelet-rich plasma, we always see it in the internet, quote unquote, stem cells, not really stem cells, mm -hmm. but just um, what is PRP and how do we think about that in the setting of these hamstring injuries? Um, so Dr. Jim Bradley and colleagues at UPMC, so Pittsburgh, um, they um, have 
we parted the probably the largest database as far as PRP mm-hmm. injections with hamstring. What they found is that PRP injections allowed for faster return to play in athletes with grade two hamstring injuries and with a one game overall difference. So this is a big deal in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no difference in total days missed or time to return to practice though. Um, mm-hmm. So as far as that timeline, there is a study in the NFL players over a 10-year period. So 41% of players with a hamstring strain returned in less than one week, and another 41% returned between one and three weeks. So only 18% of these hamstring injuries lasted longer than three weeks. Their overall average missed time across all levels was 13 days. So this study also pointed out in the first two weeks after hamstring injury is the highest risk of re-injury. So some of these athletes are just not ready to return we have to have a lot of caution then so i'm going to let ashley talk a little bit more about recurrence but something to look out for absolutely so i think that's that's really important to kind of talk about recurrence and what can potentially predispose that right not just for our fantasy teams but also for the team and you know caring for the athlete as well so we've all seen that player that has had a hamstring injury they rehab they return in two weeks only to be sidelined a week later and so are there certain risk factors for re-injuring a hamstring and the answer is yes so the paper we referenced earlier nicely identified several risk factors for recurrence the first being shorter time to return to play and we're going to put a nice graph up that shows this they found that the greatest risk of re-injury was when players returned within two weeks of their initial injury. And like Catherine mentioned earlier, um, older age and longer playing experience is also a risk factor for hamstring strains in general, but also a major risk for recurrence. Other um, aspects that were found to be risk factors for recurrence in that study were sustaining their initial injury in-game rather than practice, lower BMI, and wide receiver positions. They were all risk factors for sustaining a re-injury in the same season. So to go back to that shorter time to return to play, it's kind of of like, how do you balance it? The majority of hamstring injuries return in less than one week, you know, 41%, and another 41% re- return less than two weeks, but that also increases their risk of re-injury. So how do you balance that? I don't know that we really know that answer, but at least we can say that the vast majority of our athletes that have hamstring strains, we can expect them to get back um, pretty soon after their injury, barring it being a full thickness injury or needing a PRP injection or, you know, needing more extensive rehab or even surgery. Right. And I think there's a difference between returning to practice and maybe that's part of the solution, returning to practice before returning to a game so that you can sort of have those test runs because we, you know, we can see in the data that the injury um, recurrence is happening in game rather than practice. Are you one of the many surgeons who thinks that getting osteochondral allografts is a complex and time consuming process? Well, you're not alone. We're excited to tell you that there is a simpler way. At Jarrah Ortho, they get it. They've heard your concerns and made it their goal to simplify the process. They're not just any company. They are leaders in fresh osteochondral allografts, holding over 60% of the global market share. JRF Ortho is committed to accommodating your needs, delivering allografts usually around 30 days, and it's all on your terms. You choose your scheduling option, whether it's specifying a surgical date, providing a date range, or just requesting the earliest available allograft. Your preferences are their top priority. And there's more. They offer pre-sutured tendons and meniscus, and ordering is as easy as a few clicks on their user-friendly online ordering system. So why make it complicated when you can make it JRF Ortho easy? Simplify your allograft procurement today. Your journey to seamless osteochondral allograft starts with JRF Ortho. To learn more, visit jrfortho.org. 
Episode 59 and 60, Dr. William Bugby, Osteochondral Allograft Transplantation, Part 1 and 2. So now we want to transition to the fun stuff, which is surgery. But before we talk about your surgical technique, which we're really excited to hear about how that's evolved over the years and what you're currently doing, we want to talk about indications. So um, you've been doing OCAs for a long time. What um, is your ideal patient for an osteochondral allograft transplant? Um, is it always including some some uh, level of bone loss, or are you using it in large cartilage defects? Like, what what kind of clinical scenarios are you using? Well, so you might imagine I have a big salvage uh, population with complex stuff, but you know we were doing these in really you know arthritis and osteonecrosis and even tumors and all this stuff before it became a thing in sports back about the mid nineties. But I really have a, a five criteria. That I, I mean, I have this green really good and, and yellow maybe and red maybe no go. And that's pretty important what, when not to do it. Um, but the patient characteristics, if I was to choosing a perfect patient characteristic, someone under 30, a quiet knee, in other words, not a big inflammatory, wet knee, you know, with normal meniscus, of course, ACL, normal biomechanics, alignment is good. And honestly, mm -hmm. preferring lower demand sports that not going to wreck their knee and re-injure it. And if you get all those right, and then a focal defect of the femoral condyle or trochlea, not patella, but trochlea or femoral condyle, um, then those are home runs. Our data on those ideal candidates is so good as 98%. It's good as a hip replacement. But those are few mm -hmm. and far between, right? So... Um, the reality is that I put them in boxes like traumatic cartilage injury, who's someone who's not had symptoms for more than a year, a year and a half, because this chronicity becomes a problem. So you mentioned something, your, your ideal graft is a uh, medium to large medial femoral condyle. So I feel like a lot of people feel that. So because of that, there's a lot of um, limitation on medial femoral condyles that are out mm -hmm. there. And I think if you're waiting for that perfect match, you may have to wait a little bit, not as much nowadays because of availability, but you're still waiting. So let's talk about non-orthotopic grafts. So using a lateral femoral condyle for a medial lesion. What are your thoughts on this? Um, do you do this often? Are there any parameters you use to make sure it'll fit? Yeah. I think using a lateral for a medial is a good idea. Again, a big lateral has a lot of contour. And if you, you know your anatomy, right, a lateral femoral condyle is way wider than a medial, actually. So if you need a 30 millimeter graft, you're more likely to get it out of a lateral femoral condyle than a medial. So I'll do that quite a bit if I need to. Um, but you got to be know your stuff. It's a contralateral, so it's the opposite. So if you're in a bind and you got a big old medial femoral condyle, I'd take a big, big lateral and do the job. I think the trochlea too, people are trying to measure like all these parameters, but a big trochlea, you can find the right curvature. And where our studies and others have showed that if the graft you need is 20 millimeters or smaller, you can pretty much get a, a contour that fits from anywhere. Okay, you wouldn't know. Just we've done lateral to medial, we've done everything. So choosing a non-orthotopic, I would I put medial femoral condyles in the patella in a pinch, but um, I wouldn't do it for the trochlea. I wouldn't do it for the patella. I, I would do it for either medial lateral femoral condyle, and it's more the size of the lesion you're treating as much as anything. So 
And yeah. as to your point, yes, you can get a lateral femoral condyle a lot easier than a medial. And oh, by the way, that cartilage is thicker too. So he asked me, is cartilage thickness non-orthotopic? It's not just the surface contour, it's thickness. So yeah. I think a, the thicker the cartilage, the better. And who cares what the offset is in the subcondyle plate? I don't think that's been shown to matter yet. Episode 58, Ask the Sports Docs, Anterior Knee Pain and BFR Following Knee Surgery. Okay, do we have time for one more? You want to do one more? Yeah, yeah let's okay. do one more. Okay. All right. So I'm just pulling it up now. So I think the other question, okay. So um, his name is Gary. He is from Indiana. And so also a physical therapist. And he was wondering, we he said, yeah. we love our PT audience. Keep on listening and sharing. <laughs> he um, feels like, at least in his area, there's like a lot of conflict and um sort of divided lines on BFR. Like, when do you do it? Is it like, okay to do it early? Do you have to wait six weeks? Like he's kind of seen a lot of different things out there and kind of want to hear our opinions. So what do you have to say to Gary? <laughs> so I, I have no hesitancy to use yeah. BFR. I think it's a really great modality. I use it in my non-operative patients as well as my surgical patients and uh, surgery wise. I honestly, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to follow this up with, I don't know why I do this, but I do a wound check first to make sure it's healing well before I do BFR. And you're just like, yeah. why? And it's like, well, you know, do you compromise wound healing? I don't think so. It's, you're not really depriving, you're not depriving all the blood flow. You're depriving 80%. You're still maintaining 20%. So I don't really see why that would be an issue, but that's what was listed yeah. as a contraindication. So I do it. But I started as early. First off, I do it preoperatively. I should start with that. So that patients know what to expect after surgery. And then I started um, after two weeks. Once I've done that check and remove the steri strips, um, and everything looks okay, that's when I'll start blood flow research in therapy. Um, I use it in pretty much all of my knee surgery patients, but especially like my ACLs, MPFLs, TGOs, like the major yeah. knee, cartilage, exactly. Because I think it's really important to activate that quad early. Like I used to say, oh, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You get back your motion eventually. And it really matters. Like you get back your motion quickly and your strength quickly, your rehab is all easy peasy. But like if you struggle with that, it really can hold you back from all the other things you want to do. So I'm a big fan of BFR. Um, and I, this might be controversial. I even use it in skeletally mature individuals because for yeah. me, if I'm going to use a tourniquet for an ACL and a 14 year old and have it up for what the max time is 120 minutes, yeah. I'm usually not going anywhere near that. But if I'm going to do that, why am I not saying that, you know, one to two minutes of blood flow restriction therapy is going to compromise their growth plates. I just, I don't see that rationale. Yeah. What are your totally thoughts? Agree. Yeah. Same. You know, I would say even when you think about the wound kind of healing thing, a lot of times people in those first two weeks can't tolerate BFR anyway, just because they're so yeah. like overwhelmed by all the initial stuff and yeah. they're just trying to get their head around like, can I do, how do I do extension flexion? Like all the basic sort of stuff. But if like a patient came in and said, oh, was I supposed to do it? We did it post-op day three. Are you got, are you upset? I'd be like, no, you know, like, yeah. you know, I, I've never read anything that definitively says like that's going to give us wound issues, but I totally get why theoretically we're sort of like, okay, a little caution there and make sure it, it's wound, you know, it's healing well. But I have to say, I can't say I've seen many people who could tolerate it in the first two weeks. <laughs> so, that's true. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's probably no big deal. Episodes 54 and 55, Dr. Matt Provincher, Musculoskeletal Injuries in the Military Population, Part 1 and 2.
So you brought up a really interesting point about looking at injuries or I guess, you know, pathology and determining if that impacts performance. And a lot of the screening tools you talked about talked about performance metrics and how they link up that Y balance. You talked about the motion capture system. Are there any screening tools or aspects you look at in a patient's history, whether it be Patriots, NFL, or SEAL team that can predict musculoskeletal injury, that can suggest that someone's going to have a future injury and that we need to maybe handle them differently or send them through, through a program? Yeah, Ashley, it, it, it's 100% multidisciplinary and it starts with, you know, a basic musculoskeletal evaluation. And honestly, our, our therapists, our strength conditioning athletic trainers are number one, two, and three in this in order to help us provide data and inputs in terms of uh, Navy Special Warfare, in terms of the Patriots, in terms of NFL, NBA, NHL, et cetera. And whether it's wearable tracking indoors, outdoors, uh, why balance is absolutely amazing, very simple, but amazing, um, you know, from a, from a joint standpoint, uh, and correlating just why balance plus everything else trying to distill out the noise using good statistical methods and logistical, multiple logistical regression and all these things we do to try to distill out the right variables. You would find out very quickly what this was, um, looking at, uh, body, uh, composition body comp, uh, resting metabolic rates, um, other types of things, how you perform uh, in certain stress environments, um, body fat composition on top of full body comp and muscle comp and other things. So these were, these were the things we were really starting to, to look at um, on top of all the other basic type of data we had, you know, how fast can you run? How fast can you do a three cone? How fast can you pull up strengths? But it's, it's way, it was way more than that. And that's what the military used to see if you were physically ready. Basically three tests. Can you do some push-ups? Can you run a little bit? And can you do a couple other things? They change all the time, but not, they're not that many. They're not very sophisticated. Seeking a clinically proven solution for your patients with massive and irreparable rotator cuff tears that has the potential for early functional recovery and pain relief? Check out InSpace. InSpace is the industry's only minimally invasive, biodegradable, subacromial balloon spacer for the arthroscopic treatment of massive, irreparable rotator cuff tears. InSpace is designed to restore the subacromial space without requiring sutures or fixation devices. Learn more at striker.com slash InSpace. Episode 61 and 62, Dr. Brett Owens, MCL Injuries, Part 1 and 2. You know, they've been critiqued a fair amount, but I think there really can be some value. And they use publicly accessible you know, video analysis to, and publicly accessible reports uh, to look at the injury patterns. I, I think it can be kind of cool. I, you know, I spent, I looked at, you know, we wrote a paper through the committee where Brophy and I looked at every video analysis of every ACL tier in the NFL. So it can be, it definitely is laborious work to do those video video analyses um, and some of the similar findings here, right? It'd be, it's, it's the linemen that get rolled up on that have, you know, contact, you know, at least MCL, sometimes multi-ligament ACL, MCL, you know, injuries um, as opposed to position players. And that's where most of the data is on prophylactic bracing. And, um, you, know, you know, this study confirms, you know, a, a body of evidence, um, you know, the West Point study by Sittler, um, uh, that used a, a single upright hinge. Albright's work uh, in, in the Big Ten, and um, and there have been other studies that you know that really show the, the value of the dual upright brace, for, usually for linemen. Episode fifty three overtime 
Does grit impact ACL outcomes? A higher baseline grit was significantly associated with greater postoperative HSS PD-FAB scores and then quality of life scores across time. So that's indicating that grittier individuals achieve better physical function and activity levels over time than less gritty counterparts. So of note, there was no significant associations between baseline grit and any of the knee symptom scores or promised mobility score. So what do you think? What does that mean next for us? You know, should we be looking at things um, screening postoperatively? Can we educate on expectations? Should we be using um, these variables to measure um, beforehand? Ashley, is this change in your practice? So yeah, I'm really excited about the direction of this. We've spoken extensively on this podcast about the risk of you know psychological recovery after a major surgery like ACL and how fear of re-injury and, and um, kind of psychological barriers can hold people back to returning to play and feeling confident in their knee. And I think that this kind of highlights that um, having that gritty uh, disposition, that's that stamina, that, that drive to persevere through setbacks and really push towards that goal can predict better outcomes. So I think it is worthwhile screening. Episode 63, The Injury Report, Sports Hernia in the NFL. With regards to post-injury performance, we should start by pointing out that there is zero literature looking at performance outcomes after high ankle strain specifically. Um, there's not a lot of papers that look at performance specifically after NFL injuries. We did that recording at the start of the season about this, but high ankle sprains, there's nothing out there. However, there is a 2022 study that looked at NFL performance metrics after ankle injuries in general and ankle sprains specifically. And given that high ankle injuries um, represent the more substantial type of ankle sprain and that this study did not report significant findings, we do think it's important to discuss here. So Desai and colleagues out of Columbia reported that ankle sprains negatively affected the performance of NFL players, even multiple years after the injury, despite a relatively high return to play rate of 91%. So not only did they have a decrease in performance, they had a decrease in total games played and a decrease in performance output per game played as well. So it wasn't just performance metrics across the board, it was performance per game that they played. And the only position not to be found to be statistically significant was the quarter. Episode 40, live from AOSSM, Not Your Average Bear with Dr. Sean Anthony. Now that I can um, use bare implant to try to tissue engineer and re restore, regenerate the ACL tissue, um, but whether you know we're talking about meniscus or rotator cuff, I think there's a lot of other applications yeah. that that will you know will be exciting Achilles. for us in the future. Yeah, yeah. One that, you know I know we've talked about, but mm -hmm. I think it's interesting to see where this is going to go. Um, or like one of the upcoming episodes we have about using biologics for rotator cuff repair. Right. You know, you want to be able to keep that whatever biologic you're doing, whether it's activated with whole blood, there and at the site of pathology. Episode 42, live from AOSSM, when hashtag save the meniscus isn't an option with Dr. Aaron Critch and Dr. Christian Blatter. Walk us through a little bit, like how you select patients, like who are good, um, what are, you know, your indications for a meniscal allograft transplantation? Yeah, well, I'm glad you started with yeah. patient indication because when we look at the results and the outcomes, it really depends on the patient that you're given. And uh, my mentors in fellowship used to say, you know, it's an operation that's either done too early or too late, meaning yeah. we don't do them prophylactically, but sometimes by the patients become symptomatic, they have a lot of cartilage damage, some arthritis already, and very, very young knees. So I think the earlier you can get to them, the better that they do. There's been a lot of literature and data showing that, you know, the more intact the cartilage, the less joint space narrowing, um, 
you know, other factors that uh, really help us decide on early transplantation, clearly better than salvage transplantation. Sure. Episode 44, live from AOSSM, Challenging Cartilage Injuries with Dr. Sabrina Strickland and Dr. Seth Sherman. Uh, no, it's all, I think first point, it's all about cartilage mapping, when to do osteotomy alone and osteotomy plus cartilage. So that's key point number one to me. So if you have those lateral lesions Sabrina talked about, with a high TTTG, you can offload those, you shift forces proximal and medial, and life's good. You, that's a classic Fulkerson, 87% or better, right? Mm -hmm. Episode 46, live from AOSSM, off the cuff subacromial balloon and bicep smash, Dr. Nick Verma and Dr. John Tokish. And the midterm follow-up is now happening, which is up to five years. We had about 90 patients in each group, partial repair and balloon, and only two were revised to reverse in, in both groups. So it's a pretty challenging patient population. Um, we had about 80% meeting MCID, 80% meeting PASS, and about 60% meeting um, SCB, which are, you know, that's a hard yeah. measure to meet yeah. where you're completely asymptomatic. But the majority of the patients did feel that they were better and they were happy with their outcomes. Episode 48 and 49, Dr. Brian Lau, Anterior Shoulder Instability, Part 1 and Part 2. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, so, because we bookmarked um, yes. that functional testing. So, can you talk a little bit, Brian, about some of the things that you look at with your athletes? Yeah. So, you know, on the field, we don't have anything. But, you know, if they've after they've gone off the field and say it's a, a week or two or three weeks later from the injury, um, we've developed a battery of tests at Duke where we have a combination of patient surveys as well as functional testing. So, surveys include the WOSI scores, a... Um, shoulder instability return to sport index scale um, and then we check their strength uh, we check endurance testing so we do um, they'll be basically doing a push-up position trying to move their hands at least uh, that way we have an, um, so that's an endurance testing um, we also do posterior stabilization so they have this where they're kind of lifting their arm up in a certain position and holding it for as long as they can some weight Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sports Talks. We hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as we did. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and now on YouTube to stay up to date on all things sports medicine. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review or comment. You can also reach us by email at thesportstalkspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at thesportstalkspod and Twitter at thesportsdocpod. We love your feedback.